Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, entrepreneurship is not the one business you're doing today. It's a, it is a way of life. It's a way of thinking. And once you sort of get those principles and core concepts in place, it's a path to liberation. Marcus Whitney is founding partner of Jumpstart Health Investors, the most active venture capital firm in America focused on innovative healthcare companies with a portfolio of over 100 companies. He's also co-founder and minority owner of Major League Soccer Team, Nashville Soccer Club. We're going to talk about that. Marcus is the author of the newly released and best-selling book, Create and Orchestrate, about claiming your creative power through entrepreneurship. He is also the producer and host of Marcus Whitney Live, an interview show live-streamed Monday through Friday, every day, 12 Central, on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Twitch. I stream to Twitch, too, and nobody ever tunes in. I'm going to ask him if he gets any viewers on Twitch. And Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe, a podcast on all major platforms. He's also got some other credentials that he's asked me not to read, but I'm going to tell you. He's a member of a bunch of boards. He's gotten a bunch of honors and recognitions. This guy, he's really cool. And I've known him for, you know, somewhere in the realm of a decade. My very dear friend, Marcus Whitney. Marcus, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Sweet. Hey, Kate. (laughs) Hey. Oh, my gosh. This is such a fun thing to be able to bring our real life friendship into this virtual format. You were one of the first people that I connected with in this manner when this whole crazy COVID-19 thing started happening. And so uh, this feels like completing the circle. I would imagine that for those who are tuned in, that one of the first conversations we need to have to address some questions for people is they were probably curious about this whole professional soccer thing. So how did you end up? I know you talk about it in the book, uh, but for those who haven't had the chance to read it yet, how did you get a professional sport to your town and you end up being a minority owner of it? Let's hear a quick version of that story. Sure. You know, I think we're going to talk a little bit later on about how special Nashville is. And Nashville's not the only city in America. There are many cities in America where um, I I think it's often these these tier two cities. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. But these tier two cities have this kind of can-do, community-oriented spirit. Not all of them, but many of them do. I think about places like Columbus, for example. And Nashville's just one of those places. And so, when somebody says, hey, we ought to have something here, if you can get you know, five or 10 people to, to agree, you might be on your way to having a movement going. And I think that's, that's really how professional soccer got to Nashville. It didn't start with me, um, and it probably didn't even start with the guy I'm about to tell you about, but a guy named Chris Jones, he started a Twitter account when uh, the Nashville Metros, which was a professional amateur-based team uh, in Nashville that had been here for decades, shut down, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a lapse where we didn't have a soccer team to cheer for. And Chris got on Twitter and created a, an account called Nashville FC, Nashville Football Club, and said, hey, you know, we ought to have a community-based club so that in, in the event that something happens, we can kind of weather what a normal ownership group wouldn't be able to. And a bunch of people started following. And he said, OK, well, if you all are following, why don't we just set up a quick $75 membership? And he had like, you know, hundreds of people sign up for that. So I was number 86. OK. And it went from just being like a group of people who were meeting in bars to talk about the, the future and the possibility of it to fielding uh, just like five aside teams, just like, you know, after work kind of teams. You know what I mean? To getting a franchise in the fourth division of U.S. soccer um, called the Nashville Premier Soccer League as uh, amateur. But we we entered in and uh, made the playoffs in the very first season, started having a thousand to two thousand people coming out per game. And that showed that there was real momentum 
that if you could do that for a nonprofit community based thing, imagine what could happen if you threw some money behind it. So uh, Chris reached out to me towards the end of the first season and, and asked me to become more involved. That ended up with me quickly becoming the chairman of the, the nonprofit group. And then it was just sort of like the, the race was on. Uh, from, from that point, uh, there was a ton of momentum in the news and the media about the potential of other soccer organizations coming to town. It created a little bit of pressure on us to say, yeah. hey, if soccer is going to come to town, we ought to be the ones to sort of make it happen. And then my, my skill set at the time was based in entrepreneurship and raising money. So I did what I do, packaged up our team had an investor pitch meeting, and we were able to put together an investor group that said, yeah, we're going to take this thing to the next level. And so David Dill, who's now the CEO of LifePoint Health, very large health system, and Chris Redditch, a healthcare entrepreneur here in town, and myself ended up rounding out the investment group. We received a franchise in what was the third division called USL. That moved to the second division, and then uh, Major League Soccer announced that it was going to expand and Nashville was at the bottom of the list, but then John Ingram, who is a hometown billionaire, decided he wanted to really get behind it. John bought a majority in our club. Collectively, we went forward and we became the first expansion team of of this next class. So we're playing our first season right now. We're doing great in in our last, I guess, ten games. We're four three and three. You know, no team coming in into the league in their expansion year has scored more points, with the exception of Atlanta and LA. And before the beautiful thing about everything, I mean, nothing is beautiful about COVID, but (laughs) we got to have our first home match at Nissan Stadium, which is where the Tennessee Titans played, Nashville Football League team. We packed out the house, had, you know, I can't remember the number, but it was in the 40s or 50,000 people there. And it was awesome just for like one night before COVID shut everything (laughs) down. We had, you know, Nashville's uh, soccer community out and it was it was an awesome night. So it's been a lot of fun. It was really, you know, the story is much, much longer than that, which is why I did. Yeah. Book to it, but you know, hopefully that sort of frames up how it how it happened. Yeah, you summarize it well there because I th- I think it's really worth people taking the time. Of course, I'm I'm recommending that folks buy and read your book, create and orchestrate. But I think in particular because it may strike some as odd that I would start this discussion on the Tech Humanist show talking about soccer. But I think what you demonstrate so aptly in that story, in in the way you tell it in the book, is how much. It required, number one, a bold response. Like you just said, when when there was that one announcement where you decided to sort of take a stand and say, no, 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 if it's going to be anybody, it's going to be us. Yeah. That may have been a little bit contrarian to what people might expect you to do in that moment, because you might just you might think, you know, oh, well, you would just be excited about there being the possibility of something bigger happening and just accept the fate that like, well, you got it to the point where people were enthusiastic, but but that wasn't good enough. And then I think you also are demonstrating how this orchestrate concept really works when you take it to its fullest idea. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you for, for, for framing it that way. I, I think in the chapter, what I try to help everyone understand is that the single thread that everybody and everybody came in at different times with plenty of different motivations, right? At different stages, you know. Obviously, when John came in, you're talking about playing a game that only a billionaire can play, right? So that yeah. that's, that that lowers the number of people in the playing field significantly, right? right. As of when Chris started, when the boundary, when the when the barrier to entry was just start a Twitter account and have the courage to step out there and say, "Hey, who's with me?" Right? Two totally different um, thresholds, mm-hmm. but still. Uh, I would say the unifying thread was we wanted a team for Nashville by Nashville. And I think the thing that everybody didn't like the idea of was an outsider coming in 
with money. And we were seeing a lot of that in our city with with many other businesses and real estate. People mm-hmm. were just coming in with money. And we just didn't want our soccer team to to be like that. You know, we wanted it to be by people who were here, the community. Everyone could trust that the people who were leading the organization had the city's best interest in mind. Yeah, and I think one of the things that seems like it makes the soccer story so successful is also part of what factors into a lot of the other stories that you tell in the book and that I know you to have, which do tie into technology and entrepreneurship uh, even more, which is the character of Nashville and how that becomes a character in these stories. And of course, having lived there for you know 13 years myself, I experienced it firsthand. But I think some folks out there who are not you know, Nashvillians or aren't as familiar with Nashville may be wondering, you know, how do I help promote my town, my community to be what it sounds like Nashville is in these stories, a character unto itself that's playing a role in helping, you know, build and support not just a a new professional soccer team, uh, but also these entrepreneurial endeavors that we'll get in more, more, more into and building a tech community almost from scratch and, and, you know, kind of fostering an ecosystem where there wasn't one. How do, how do you know, do you have recommendations for how people can develop that kind of community where they are? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think, I think there's, there's a physical uh, communities, but there's also a ton of online communities. And I think they share the same principle, which is you're actually trying to create something for people around you in a, in a way that's bigger than you, right? Like you know you're going to get benefit from it. Okay? So we don't we don't need to sort of talk about what are the you know, what's the intention, what are you trying to get out of it? You're going to get something out of it, right? Now what you get out of it may just be social and political capital, okay? It may not be money that you're extracting directly from it, but if you're at the center of making something valuable for other people, you're going to get something out of it. So let's just put that to the side mm-hmm. and let's talk about Kate when we really did meet. You and I met, mm-hmm. you know, met really around Bar Camp Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. Which was an event that uh, a group of people, many people threw in 2007, August. Yeah, wow. 13 years ago. 13 years ago, <laughs> right? And, and nobody made money from that thing. You know, in fact, like at the end, a couple of us had to like stroke a check to like make sure <laughs> you know, we paid for exit in and, and a couple of other things. Right. But but what did we all get out of it? Wow. We got, you know, friendships, relationships, this sense of what what was possible in in the city and for those who who are listening and i'm saying bar camp nashville you don't know what it is it basically was a free conference it was a free one-day conference where anyone who was interested in the digital landscape whether that was blogging or computer programming or design or innovation generally speaking would just come and present or learn or have a conversation or whatever just be around other like-minded people and when you just create space and then you create you know really cool interactions and ways for people to learn and develop and grow and and improve their network it's it's a it's a net plus for everybody because everyone gets to get gets to be upgraded in that experience and then they can then um feedback into it and you know the awesome thing about bar camp was i really did it one year that thing lived for you know, 10 plus years here, right? <laughs> you know, with other people always every year, someone else rotating in and and, and seeing it as, uh, you know, an honor to do it. But also there was this characteristic where if you came in and you ran bar camp for a year, your personal value in the community was, was you know, elevated. Yeah. Um, just as it was for me that very first year that I did it. And so, and I think we're seeing this online in communities as well, right? Community development. When people are trying to create a community and they just want to like get money out of it right away, they don't go anywhere, right? Because people can smell a fraud a mile away. It's like, let's just look at what you're doing here with the tech humanists. It's like the reason why it's why it's growing and why people are engaged and they come back week after week is because 
you're selflessly giving, right? You know, you are doing the work of booking the guests and making a high quality show and showing up on time, showing up on time, showing up on time, right? <laughs> and 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 giving people something positive to think about, quite frankly, in the midst of a world where, look, I, we, we all know what happened last night, right? It's like, this is, it's a tough time, right? And so I, I just think that community is about understanding that we're all better together and just, just, what can you do to help someone else? You'll you'll get something out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it feels like that's one of the things that entrepreneurship is probably uh, is misleading about entrepreneurship. That I feel like people get into it in many cases because they think about the gains that they're personally going to get and so often what you get out of entrepreneurship when you approach it, especially when you approach it the way you clearly have, which is as much more of a collaborative effort and how can I build something bigger than myself with bigger than what I just myself can do by orchestrating, by, you know, being part of teams that can think bigger and outmaneuver, you know, the, what I could do on my own. I, I think that's a, a really amazing lesson that, that you put forward uh, in this, in this book and, and that serves as a really great model for community led anything. Uh, so community-led accelerator, startup accelerator, community-led, you know, football team, soccer team, community-led whatever, uh, you know, technology conference. So much of what your story is about seems like it's about getting behind the community and elevating the community. Is that a fair characterization? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think I think that it is, and 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 it's just it's just what I'm personally passionate about. Um, you know, it's I I get. I get a lot out of seeing other people experience joy and make progress, and I always seem to somehow experience joy and make progress when that's <laughs> when it's happening, right? So um, it just it just works for me. It's not a, it's not a model for everybody, but it works really well for me. Well, you're doing something you're actually pro passionate about. It's not like you got into the soccer club thing like for altruistic motives. Like, gee, some people really seem to care about soccer. <laughs> I think I'll help them get a soccer club in Nashville. Right. <laughs> like, I, look, when when I started. I definitely was not thinking about, uh, and this is probably a good segue into the entrepreneurship stuff, mm -hmm, but like mm -hmm. I started, I started because I was working too much and I needed something fun to take my mind off it. Um, but you know, like my wife, Rachel, she basically is like, I, 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 she says about me that I can't have a hobby. So like it starts <laughs> as fun and then like I somehow make it into a business, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> then it's no longer fun. It's like this thing I have to do, I have to accomplish. And <laughs> soccer was definitely that way because it, it started with me just going to the, to the pub at like six o'clock in the morning on Saturdays and going to watch premier league soccer. And then this Nashville, you know, FC thing started. Uh, which eventually came, became Nashville Soccer Club. And that was cool. And then one day I came home and I was like, so babe, I'm now the chairman of Nashville <laughs> FC. And she was like, oh my God. She's like, I, I know, I saw this coming. <laughs> she knew, she knew. She was like, all right, you know. <laughs> That's hilarious. But I feel like one of the things too about entrepreneurship, besides you know the, the mythology that uh, it's a self-involved endeavor rather than this community, entrenched thing that you have made it so often. I think entrepreneurship is also a key part of the mythology of technology. You know, so when we think about, you know, tech, this whole concept of tech that infuses the tech humanist show and the work that I do, so much of what has built this tech ecosystem and the 
tech concept has been entrepreneurship. So it's a it's a key part of that mythology, but it's also a key part of the genuine opportunity that exists there. And so I feel like what I get out of your book and you, you know the creative work you're doing around this uh, around create and orchestrate. It seems to be at its core about sharing what you've learned to make entrepreneurship more inclusive and and break down some of the barriers to entry that people might experience for a variety of reasons. But, you know, you talk about being an unlikely entrepreneur uh, and, and that you see the opportunity for many unlikely entrepreneurs out there. So what motivated you to put that resource together for other unlikely entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I, I've used unlikely uh, as as sort of a tongue in cheek code for, <laughs> come on, I'm a black college dropout. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and, and really it's not just like I'm an entrepreneur that I don't know is selling something you might expect me to be selling. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm engaged in venture capital and professional sports and, and, um, high end technology, digital marketing. Like those are the kinds of things that I get involved in. And so, um, there's, it's definitely a code, right? For those who would understand it and for others, they just sort of mean, what do you mean? Okay, if you, if you have to ask that, <laughs> you know. Um, then we're but, not being intellectually honest with each other. That's, then right? we're not being honest, right? Yeah. And, and and I think the reason why I, I want to make it more accessible is because my belief is that the market is ultimately, uh, it, the market really doesn't care that much. Um, about your gender and your race and those other kinds of things and your credentials, you know, like we can take it beyond demographics, like whether or not you have the college credentials, what kind of household you were brought up in, you know, how much, even how much money you have in the bank today, right? There are all sorts of really clever ways to overcome all that stuff. And this, that's never been more true than it is today with the internet, right? Whether you know Muffy from the country club, all that sort of stuff. Exactly. All those kinds of things, right? (laughs) And 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 so a lot of the a lot of the things that that make entrepreneurship inaccessible are, can you see yourself mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur? You know, which was why I put my face on the front of the book to be really clear. Like, hey, you can see yourself as an entrepreneur. You know, um, and and do you understand the fundamentals of how entrepreneurship works? Right. I, I don't believe entrepreneurship is like a paint by numbers thing. Uh, but there are principles and there are some core concepts that you do have to learn over the, uh, you know, on your journey to becoming a functional entrepreneur that everyone who is one takes for granted, right? But the people who aren't looking are on the outside looking in and uh, they're, they're, it's really pretty mystical, quite frankly. And it, and it doesn't need to be mystical, right? You know, it doesn't need to be locked up in very, very expensive MBA programs or anything like that. It can be, it can be made uh, very easy to consume by the layman especially if you wrap it in a narrative, which is why I wanted to make sure that I didn't just give information in my book, but I tried to kind of add in my own narrative full of failures, right? Uh, oh, very candid. I'm, I'm so impressed with how uh, ready you were to share these, uh, you know, you say failures, I think you were you were able to couch them in, you know, true lessons learned, which which is not a failure in a way, right? Yeah, for sure. It's 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 where I learned everything important. It's like the stories of success are not that valuable, quite frankly. But where you know, when I've really really failed, that's when this missing principle or this really this, this missing concept appeared. You know, it's like you talk about mythology. It's almost like uh, I don't know that that's that's when ah uh, you know 
the, I, I got the, I got the Oracle, you know, when, <laughs> when I, when I, you know, had to file bankruptcy or whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, uh, it's definitely those points where you realize you're running into a brick wall that, and you got something wrong. But the important thing is they just add up to your, your durability, your strength, your wisdom. And, uh, you know, for me, entrepreneurship is a career. It's like, I wrote this book about 20 years of my life. I'm 44. I'm like, I got two more of those, mm-hmm. you know, in me. And I'm going to be way wiser for the next two. And and so just trying to make sure people understand entrepreneurship is not the one business you're doing today. It's a, it is a way of life. It's a way of thinking. And once you sort of get those, you know, those principles and core concepts in place, it's a path to liberation. Do you see the venture capital industry changing with regard to the biases you talked about just a few minutes ago? You know, you, you were talking about in the book how some venture capital firms are using uh, a lot of data to try to get past their own initial biases that they may have when they're looking at, you know, the selection process, as you described, you know, the kind of four-step process. But when they're looking at these this pool of opportunities, um, if they don't see a likely entrepreneur if they're able to see the potential of that company, um, maybe if they see it represented in data rather than seeing, you know, the the, the faces or the, the demographics presented to them. But I guess I wonder, first of all, do you see that changing? And secondly, do you, do you think that data is the right way to circumvent that? Or is it is it a combination of things like more and better representation, like what you're trying to do, plus data, plus maybe other factors? Yeah, I want to directly answer your question, and then I want to give a, a much broader picture on the change I see. So the direct answer is I do see it changing, and it is absolutely about broader representation. Full stop, right? That's mm-hmm. what it's got to be. The data is not is insufficient. Necessary, but insufficient mm-hmm. for the kind of change we're talking about. Um, now, broad, broader, uh, and this is even beyond venture capital. Just in the last three weeks, I'll say, um, it has become very, very clear to me that 2020 uh, has more technology-driven change in it than I've seen since since 2007. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, for, for me, 2007 was really, really, really a big breakthrough year. Um, I went to South by Southwest. I got one of the early Twitter accounts. Then the iPhone came out. Then uh, Amazon Web Services became like something that companies started using. There were other things that happened that year, I'm sure. But those like just think about how much of the world today is social networks, mobile phones and cloud computing. Right. Netflix announced a streaming plan that year, too. I mean, there's a lot of things when you start trying to take stock of it. 2007 was an unbelievable year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank you for bringing up the Netflix Mm -hmm. thing, because that's that's another massive, massive paradigm of, Mm -hmm. of, of change. I am seeing changes really driven by technology that I haven't seen since 2007. I, I've actually kind of got bored. Like, where's the <laughs> where's the stuff, right? And it, there is one such change that that is not entirely technology driven. Um, it, it's it's largely driven by a change in regulation with the SEC called 506C, which uh, allows venture capital firms to still only raise money from accredited investors, which for the uninitiated basically means you make 200, $250,000 a year, or you have a net worth of, of $1 million, not including the value of your home. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically the threshold you have to be able to pass in order to invest in private investments because they're not well-regulated, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the SEC wants to protect people, so they wanna make sure you can endure the risk. So in the past, what that has meant is, in the standard regulation called Reg D, what that has meant is 
you can't advertise. So you can only raise money with closed networks because you can't advertise. Well, who has the closed networks with access to people that are for sure accredited? Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to look a certain way. That's going to be an inside club, mm -hmm. right? And so the regulations and the policies fostered a homogenous industry. 506C basically says you can now market and you can advertise because we now have these third-party services that can validate whether or not somebody is actually an accredited investor. So that has opened up the, the floodgates, but it takes time for that regulation to really hit. Mm -hmm. Well, AngelList, which is pretty much the premier platform for um, angel investors and has been innovating around, in and around this topic, uh, rolled out this year something called Rolling Funds. And at this point, there's probably been 100 rolling funds that have been created. They're basically one-person funds, sort of with this whole theme of one-person companies, the whole part, Paul Jarvis company of one thing. Mm -hmm. um, one-person funds where they just use the AngelList platform, the AngelList infrastructure, and they just launch a fund. And similar to Kickstarter, if they have a lot of social capital, they can raise a fund really, really quickly. And someone can sign up for a fund the same way they would sign up for Amazon. It's like you go through, it's an e-commerce workflow. <laughs> and so... That is changing the complexion very, very quickly. This feels like the kind of disruption that I saw, quite frankly, another 2007 uh, innovation, which was accelerators, right? You know, Techstars and Ycom really kind of came to prominence in 2007. And so uh, this feels like an accelerator kind of moment. And I think we're going to see a lot of new representation in the venture capital space, especially early stage, very, very quickly. Um, so that's exciting. You mm -hmm. know? It's exciting. Yeah, that is. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, you brought up accelerators and it's, that's a, an interesting segue. But I, but I also am interested in, in uh, acknowledging that there do seem to be some accelerators and funds that are specifically focused on, you know, making sure that people of color are funded and women are funded and, and that sort of thing. So that seems like it's, it's got to help. But these, um, the 506C change sounds like, well, C change sounds like a, uh, a C change in the industry as well. So that's a, Thank you for that education. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure our viewers are are, um, are learning a lot from that. You know, one one question I have for you, you know, is the when I think about the kind of orchestration that you talk about in your book. I, this is taking it to a little bit more philosophical level, I guess. Uh, it strikes me as a very human characteristic. Like that's it's not maybe a uniquely human characteristic, but it's a strongly human characteristic, right? Like it's about collaboration in a way that maybe non-human animals are capable of, but I really feel like this is something that we see kind of as a, a human characteristic of seeking a whole that's bigger than your own contribution and having to give up a, a part of your vision to achieve it. Do you feel like people can practice and get better at this skill um, or, or is this something that, you know, you either have it or you don't like that you're either wired for this kind of collaboration or you're just going to be sort of a, a sole proprietor type of person. Uh, what do you, what do you think people can do to improve or, or get better at it? If, if you do think that they can, uh, in my opinion, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that we all have it. Um, what, what I like to kind of revert back to is just the premise that everything that we see that was not created in, in nature was created by humans. Um, and very little of it was created in a silo, mm -hmm. meaning one person created it. Almost all of it was as a result of co-creation, right? 
Um, and so there you go. I mean, we, we can just kind of stop there. It's it's like everything you see, everything you use took multiple perspectives, multiple skill sets, multiple people working on things. It's fundamental to who we are and how we got here, right? So it's it's much more about tapping into it. Mm-hmm. It's much more about tapping into it. And I think there are a lot of uh, conventions and, and, and ways that we are – developing people that are not conducive to it. Mm. And so that's why we need people to be out here advocating and encouraging and creating environments where people can do this. You know, design thinking shouldn't be such a sort of special thing. It should be sort of <laughs> basic. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a basic understanding. You know, the, the, I, I, am, I am getting more and more, um, more and more strong in my uh, feelings about the damage that school is, is doing to, to us mm-hmm. um, as we continue to hold on to the model from the industrial revolution, right? Um, it just just that what we were trying to produce then and that model and, and our unwillingness to like innovate and advance from from that model is is really not helpful. It's mm-hmm. it's it's not the skill set that we need. We we need people who understand themselves, who who know how to collaborate, who know how to work in groups and who don't don't fear failure. We need people who don't fear failure. And that's not what the school systems of today are, are set up for. They're set up for individual working, don't share work, don't share answers, right? That's not how things work in the real world. Like, when do you ever have to do something where you can't get help from somebody else? Right, right. You know, you I, also, when you mentioned design thinking too, there's even, you know, kind of a criticism that's common about design thinking that it doesn't, it doesn't involve you know, users or, or the, the people who are affected. And, you know, on this show, a lot, of, a lot of times we talk about the the harms that can be done to communities by not involving the people that are going to be affected in those communities. And so I think even there, within that example, it's an example of how not thinking holistically and communally and about the impact of, you know, what can happen with failure and what can go beyond failure into lessons learned and so on feels like it's an opportunity to, to think in a more rich, integrative, holistic way about this. I completely agree. And I, and I feel like one of the things that is happening right now that feels like a fantastic evolution is that I, I think we're really starting to break that stuff down this year. You know, it really <laughs> feels like the way that we think, the way that we frame and understand learning and the way that we understand working together is really starting to change for the better. I hope that we can do it in a, in a way that has a has an elevated understanding of the relationship between humanity and technology because that's going to be critical because the two shall never be separate again. I don't you know what I mean? So we have to integrate human to human to tech and and everything in between. Um, but it's exciting. I mean, the stuff I'm seeing out there is really exciting right now. Yeah. And I would add to that end business because it, and that's why entrepreneurship, I think, is such a key piece of this, because uh, in, in the work that I do so often, it's about teaching business leaders how the work that, that they do through technology impacts humans. And there's that sort of triangle relationship there, right? So we have to make sure that business understands that the technology it develops for human experience creation is is the the great... Um, accelerator of human experience and that, you know, those things need to tie together. Business incentives need to align with human incentives. And when entrepreneur uh, programs and accelerators and everything are only focused on, you know, in- incremental growth and and uh, profit and acceleration at that level, 
it's not incorporating that holistic human discussion. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I found, you know, I find your story and your work so compelling because of its nature of being so community driven and community tied. And I know, of course, you still got to make, you know, you got to teach entrepreneurs how to make a profit and how to grow and find a market and, you know, all of that stuff, because those are business fundamentals. But, but I think, you know, where it sounds like you're coming from and where a lot of I, I know that the work that you do is anchored really seems like it brings it back to this understanding of people in community and how that that all ties together. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not business at all costs, you know, or business above humanity. It's business in service of humanity. Simple, you know, um, it, it's actually pretty easy. <laughs> you know, it's actually pretty easy. I mean, I think. The, the big aha moment for me was when I really understood financed, uh, finance as a, as a discipline and I understood like the mechanisms and the reports and just how you structured a financial pro forma and all those kinds of things. When I realized all the externalities that we do not hold businesses uh, accountable for that don't ever show up in the finance documents but that they impact – Right. All of those externalities. That's when that's when it really hit me. It was like, oh, no, 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 no. We have we, we've got to, you know, everybody we a we need to broaden the scope of who understands business, because so many people, so many of the people who want to do good in the world, they think like business is like this bad thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, 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 no. The world speaks capitalism. I Like even communists are capitalists. Like, so <laughs> yeah, it is the universal language. OK, it's it's how the world works. And we need the do-gooders to understand it so they can do it, mm-hmm. you know, because what we have right now is the people who think it's capitalism at all costs and think and think it's business, humanity be damned. That's obvious when you look at everything that's happening. So what we, we need to make people far more business literate, everybody, so everybody can get into the market and compete. You know, and and start to to break down and, and create more fragments. Like we're we're way too consolidated. That's what all this antitrust stuff is about right now. Like we need more choice, more more local, you know, integration, local technology providers creating things that the big monoliths couldn't create, right? Because they're they're locally sensitive and uh, and and appropriate. So, yeah, I, you know, for, for me, this is and oh by the way, Kate, we don't teach entrepreneurship in school, right? Right. right. Or and those financial world. disciplines that you're talking about. No, Th- these things run the world. We know they run the world. We, we, we determine whether or not we think everything is OK based on the stock market, even though it is completely disconnected from the well-being of the people. This right. Is, this is my rant lately in, in uh, 2020. I can't tell you how many times I have ranted the phrase, the economy is people. And I just did it again on Twitter because you know, we keep talking about the market, we keep talking about, you know, opening up the economy and opening up uh, read businesses so that people can start spending money within them again. And I'm like, guess what? You're just going to spread the virus and you're just going to shut it down. There's going to be more people sick and more people dying. And that's just going to promulgate this whole thing. It's going to keep this whole, these cycles going because the economy is people. And we have to understand that we cannot separate these abstract concepts of how, whether the economy is flourishing from whether people are flourishing. And that feels like until we have a, a, a well-woven understanding of those things, we're never going to get anywhere with this. But I wanted to also point out that Jerry Gobb commented, Marcus is spot on, nothing like a crisis to open things up. 
so speaking back, I think to your observation that you know 2020 has seen a lot of digital transformation that you, like you saw in 2007. Um, so we can touch back on that. And also there's a LinkedIn user who doesn't have a name that just says LinkedIn user, says business in service of humanity should be easy, check. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I mean, it, you're right, it should. It should. It but let's should. go back to the, the uh, comment that Jerry is agreeing with about nothing like a crisis to open things up. So what are some examples of what you've been seeing that feel like, you know, you're just talking about the, the consolidation of power and of technology. Uh, and how a, a good alternative to that is reinvesting in local economies and, and strengthening those communities. Um, what are you seeing that gives you hope around around that m momentum? Boy, the, there is uh, there's a movement that I'm seeing, uh, especially around, and I know we've been talking a lot about uh, community and uh, collaboration. I, I'm about to I'm about to talk about individuals. But only, only from the position of individuals being able to be productive and sustain themselves without a bunch of overhead. That that's that's really what I mean. I don't mean individuals moving as individuals. Um, but there is a lot of really amazing stuff happening right now in technology around the ability for there to be a one-person company, right? And uh, that's really really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, no code has gotten very real as of this year. Mm -hmm. um, Bubble and Airtable and Coda and all of these things, you know, I mean, as someone who invests, it was sort of a rule of the road. I don't even want to talk to a founder unless they've got a technical co-founder or they themselves can write code. And that is really becoming not true anymore. Like people are writing real, app, are building real applications with no code. That's really well, big for you to evolve past that uh, that understanding too because of your bias as a technical co-founder and, and having come up through technology. So it, you, for you to accept that and recognize that there's opportunity there is huge. It's a, it's a big deal and, 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 and it, it democratizes things in a, in a really fantastic way, right? Um, so that is a really, really big thing. Um, I don't know how to really, really frame this up well, but uh, writing as a discipline is, is coming back. People are realizing the power of the written word, and and I think there's also this this sense that I don't know if it's too far gone, but our media is really not serving us, and the advertising industrial complex uh, is is really dangerous. And so we we need you know th this year has really turned out the way that it has because of citizen journalism, right? I mean George Floyd being the mm -hmm. highest you know, level example of that. Um, citizen journalism is, is amazing, you know, and we've, we've really gotten to this point now where the barrier to be a citizen journalist, um, or, or a teacher of people, right? A teacher of people in this time when people need to be reskilled. If you don't, I don't know if you like, or don't like that word, mm -hmm. but you know, um, where, where people need to to be able to advance, uh, to, to get different skills, to meet the, this new economy and the new needs of the economy, it, it's never been more powerful. Um, and then I guess the, the final thing that I is just blowing my mind right now is um, this, this, uh, this advancement that Rome Research seems to be uh, introducing uh, where we're getting out of um, – category-based category thinking, and we're getting into truly having technology that enable, enables us to do network-based thinking. Um, and that may be really, really over, 
most people's heads if you haven't heard of Rome Research. Uh, but it is a new quote unquote note taking app that really, it, it, um, gosh, how, how do I even talk about this? It is a note taking app like Evernote or like any of these other things. But the underlying technology gives each one of us the ability to build our own knowledge graph. Um, and it's really, really powerful. And it, it feels like the kind of thing when the search engine hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it feels like that kind of thing. Like, whoa, this is completely blowing <laughs> away the way that we've been able to organize our information personally. Up until now, these companies have been able to organize information in these incredible ways. And then they make money off of that ability. Mm-hmm. You know, they sell us functionality. We don't have the ability to organize our own knowledge and information and universe of data points in that way. And now that that kind of technology is becoming available to everybody for very, very low cost. So, again, I don't I don't know how to articulate it very well, but I'm just feeling it. I feel this wave of change that is going to be pretty dramatic, I think, two, three years out. It feels like what you keep referring, what you keep describing, and you know, you've used the term a few times is democratization uh, yes. a- across a lot of different services and a lot of different opportunities, right? Yes. Uh, and then uh, our LinkedIn user has popped up once or twice more and said, uh, the economy is people, yes, and James Gilchrist. I, hi, James, it's you, okay? <laughs> I don't know why you're not showing up as James Gilchrist, but instead LinkedIn user. And then says, uh, network-based thinking, more info, please, thanks. And I think you probably did explain since he asked that question, okay. uh, so we're good. But um, okay. James, pop up again and let us know if there's a specific question you have about that. Uh, but that it's really, it's such fun to see the um, the the macro trend of that play out of, of democratization across these different services. You talked about learning. You talked about knowledge sharing. Uh, you talked about the writing, the the citizen journalism, and you know. So I think what what you may be referring to partly when you talk about the writing is the the rise of these subscription newsletters and yeah, and you Substack. know right right yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I just saw someone point out today, you know, uh, we got to make sure we give props to the to um, folks who were doing it that were women of color and, and women early days that, you know, way precede tech bros doing this. Um, but but however it happens, it's, it's good to see these cycles play out where, you know, something that has one generation of life gets another generation of life. And then maybe there becomes a more truly democratized version that is more inclusive. Uh, do you see us taking uh, us having that kind of trend toward things as we become more socially aware, more you know, kind of clued in? Um, I hope so. Mm-hmm. So, so I, w- what I'm seeing mostly is the tools uh, show up, right? I'm seeing the tools show up, and that's really exciting. I mean, Kate, one of the things I left out, but I should have said, is what you and I are doing right now, mm-hmm. which I'm sure we could have done a year ago, which is we run our own live video shows. Like this is crazy, right? Really, like this, this, yeah. this and and it's pretty inexpensive. And like you look great, and you sound great, and there's no lag, and um, that's really really powerful. But but just to kind of get to the democratization piece, mm-hmm. I what I worry about is that when I get into these spaces and I'm learning about these new emerging things, I don't see enough diversity in the people who know about them, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think I ever have, right? Um, it, it, there wasn't enough diversity in 2007 when all this stuff was happening, right. and there's still not enough diversity now. Um, just because there is such a thing as like Black Twitter doesn't mean that you know if I if we were to take this conversation 
and put it into Black Twitter that that a sufficient percentage of of that universe would know, mm-hmm. you know, some of the terms that we're talking about here. And that's to me, that's the that's the bigger problem mm-hmm. is um, we have to figure out how to be much more intentional about uh, opening up the 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 opportunities on the front end of these things because that's where all the value is created. You know what I mean? It's 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 in it's in the front end of these things, not in the consumer wave of them where everyone's just using them. It's right. in the maker phase, you know, where where everything is messy and nothing quite makes enough sense and people are just sort of figuring it out. But eventually, those same people that were just figuring it out end up, you know, like I think about. In 2007, when I went to South by Southwest and I met Matt, well, Matt, Matt Mullenweg, and he was just like a backpack dude. <laughs> and it's like now his software powers every important website on the on the Internet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and it's like, how do we get that group of people at any given phase in time to be more, you know, inclusive? How do we do that? Um I don't have the answer for it, but it's it's the, it's the question. Yeah, right? it's a good question. And I think, you know, it certainly seems like the the resource you've created with Create and Orchestrate is a step. And the work that you're doing to to um, take that message out and make sure you're having that conversation in different video shows and podcasts is a step. But obviously, it's, it's there are more steps to be done. And it's not just on you. It's on me. It's on, you know, a lot of white people. It's on a lot of people who have a lot of platforms and a lot of opportunities. So I hope that we're I hope that we're having that conversation in a meaningful enough way to to promulgate that and to make sure that we understand what some of the network nodes of that that um, organizational imperative really are. But yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. It, so I, I think a lot of the, the theme to the notes that I had made uh, in, in rereading your book and, and preparing for this discussion was so much about convincing people to become p- some part of something bigger than themselves. And that's, you know, it feels like that's part of this discussion too, right? It's, it's, it's as much a part of the soccer discussion as it is the jumpstart discussion, as it is the bar camp discussion, as it is the how do you get there to be more black founders, uh, you know, more people who are aware of the opportunities of, you know, these democratized, so supposedly democratized tech opportunities that aren't really democratized until, you know, you can have a, a meaningful conversation in black Twitter and know that there's a, a significant population that's going to understand that right. there's an opportunity there. Right. So I, is it a matter of convincing people to become p- part of something bigger than themselves? Is it a matter of convincing the the society at large to uh, expand its thinking and, and and its acceptance and create space for more than what's typically accepted? I feel like this is a yeah yeah yes and right right so so um you know the, the the CEO of Wells Fargo just got outed for for you know making a, mm-hmm. a really dumb statement. <laughs> yeah. um, you know that I'm sure he regrets at this point mm-hmm. uh, about there not being a sufficient you know pipeline of of, of talented black people or whatever whatever dumb thing right. he said it was just was shouldn't have said it. And you know um, that there is a there there is a there's a complete it, this has been blown wide open this year right there's mm-hmm. a complete lack of understanding about um, certainly the black experience. I can I can talk about that because I'm black. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to speak on behalf of any other demographic that I can't actually fully understand, but there's a really big uh, 
lack of understanding about the black experience in America on on the part of many, many white people. Mm -hmm. I don't say all, but like many, many white people, especially white people in power. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they just assume that the rules and the policies and the procedures and the norms that they have are are good and 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 lead to opportunity for black people if black people were were only available for them. Right. Right. Not not understanding all of the huge embedded gotchas that are that are in there um, that that come up as different code words that that don't say they don't scream racism, mm-hmm. but they act out racism. Right. You know, and so that is that is that is one really, really big part of it. Another really, really big part of it is that it is just a truth that. A lot of black people, because because of all of those norms and policies that have been exclusive and have not, you know, engaged um, us as a people here in this country, there are just some things we don't know, you know, like like that we that we uh, need to need to learn in order to better, you know, participate in capitalism at the highest levels. So like like a lot of us don't understand sort of the more sophisticated aspects of financing especially in the private markets. That's growing quite a bit. You know, there's there's a growing vanguard of black VCs who are out here who are doing awesome work educating people. So this guy Matt Conwell, he's he's in Baltimore. He like does, you know, AMAs all the time. You know, so there are definitely people who are who are breaking the mold and who are out here and doing the education work. But look, when you talk like across the entire country and you really are looking at all the people, it is at least my anecdotal experience when I talk to people. That's why I wrote a chapter about venture capital, right? Because there are aspects that we just have got to get out to people so they understand that this multi-trillion dollar thing that is venture capital, okay, can be explained in a single chapter. Like it's that simple. And you don't even need any credentials to participate in it, right? Literally, there's that's the gap. Yeah, and it's a heady chapter, but it can be explained in one chapter. <laughs> but it can be explained right. in one chapter, right? right? And even if even if you need to read that chapter over mm-hmm. and over again for a couple of weeks, you'll get it. You yeah. can get it. So the point is, you know, making sure that they know, they being anybody who feels like they're on the outside looking in that you belong Mm -hmm. and that the world is moving in a direction that will, that will, um, that will meet you to your belief of that. It's, it it hasn't always been there and it's not as, as perfect as it needs to be, but it is moving in that direction. It's moving in the direction of meeting you where you think you want to be. As long as you think you belong, you have a better chance of actually being there than if you don't think you belong. So, but but a lot of that is self-belief, a lot of that is understanding, a lot of that is knowledge, a lot of that is, you know, just how you understand those who are keeping you out and and, and all of those types of things. So so a lot of the, the the things I'm trying to share are really just um just my my own experiences, hoping that other people can can say, that dude's not that special. You know what I'm saying? If he did that. I can do better than that. You, you know, are I mean, special, I, honestly. But I think that word "unlikely" is is part of the secret sauce here, right? Like, yeah. you know, overcoming the concept. It's it's if it's a self concept of unlikely. Yes. Then that seems like it's a barrier to yes. yourself. Is that it, fair? It, and it is. It, no, no, no. Look, it it is. I don't care what color you are or what gender you are. There is a reality to um, external forces, and there's a reality to internal forces, right? 
which one do you have more control over? The, yeah, in, the inside the game. Internal, the inside like, game, Let's right? let the audience answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the inside game. So that's right. the one every, you know, whenever your energy and your spirits are high enough, the one you've got to focus on is the inside game. That doesn't mean, you know, you don't call the outside game out for what it is and right. you don't work to help other people to break through the outside game. But, like, work the inside game. Don't mm-hmm. be so outside focused that you're not developing, you know, you're, that you're not developing yourself and your how you see yourself and and your belonging and how important it is for you and in, in your intellect and your brilliance to be part of the solution, right? And that's a really big ask right now, I know, especially, right? Like during COVID, during the, you know, sort of aftermath of George Floyd and all of the uh, social racial protests and, and everything that have been happening, it's a really big ask to have people be able to be okay internally or do kind of internal examination. But I, but I think you're right. It is, it is so much, uh, that's what's within our control to, to whatever extent it is. And I loved it, you know, it brings me back around to the last chapter of your book where you talk about the mountain climbing metaphor and how much you learned from, from that experience. And I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't gotten a chance to read the book yet. You'll just have to buy the book and read it. Um, (laughs) but I did capture the, um, the summary of some of your lessons, like the peak is not the peak, the air is different at the top, it's harder on the way down, fatigue is inevitable. And I think, you know, without even hearing the the stories that you tell about the mountain climbing, I feel like those lessons are important for people to hear and to acknowledge that peak is not the peak, the air is different at the top, it's harder on the way down, fatigue is inevitable. What can you say about that process, that commitment to understanding yourself and improving yourself and you know being ready for the next change the next the next peak you know the next opportunity it it basically boils down to your movie and your book is about your journey it's not about a destination right it's not about a goal nobody like nobody cares about that they care about all the stuff that happened along the way mm-hmm. that's what makes the story interesting and um and and when you when you get there, it's never going to be like what you think it is. And so just just understand that in a in a time such as this, where these are really big asks, it is also true we may never experience another moment like this in our lives <laughs> as humans, where we were put in timeout to like think about what we did, <laughs> right? And it's like if you can. And, and I can't say if you can, right? But I can I can say if you can, take the time and muster the energy to do the work you know you need to do. You know. I don't know the work you need to do, mm-hmm. but you know the work you need to do. And you may not have another time like this to be able to do it. This is a really, really unique, potentially once-in-a-lifetime moment that we're that we're sitting in. Yeah, with a convergence of a lot of things going on. I mean, this is a very, it's a very US-centric perspective, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about. But I know that, you know, the ricochet effect of, you know, the George Floyd protests have been felt around the world. I know that the US presidential election is felt around the world. I know that, you know, other countries are going through their political processes and, and turmoil but everyone has an eye on what's happening in the US. So, you know, for those of us who are in the US, you know, it's, it's a lot happening all at once. And uh, 
these are great life lessons. It's a great moment, as you say, to, to sit with it and kind of examine, you know, what is it that I need to do? What is it I need to take away? What is it I need to give back? What has this moment taught you about what, what you need to do or take away or give back? Taught me, teaching me, you know, um, <laughs> I, I think it is teaching me that I can be okay in situations that I probably prior to this would have said I would not have been okay in. And it's, it's giving me a glimpse into our much, much larger and longer story as humanity. You know, <laughs> like I feel like up until this point, I only read about epic moments in, in history. <laughs> Probably the closest thing that 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 I can say that I experienced would be 9/11, mm -hmm. you know. But this is different, right? Like this is for sure an epic moment in humanity. Mm -hmm. No no question. This is this this would go up in the history books with some of the biggest things that have ever happened in in recorded history. And that is awesome in the true sense of the word awe, right? Like it it does make me look at the trees longer. It makes me look at the squirrels longer. It makes me pay more attention to my dreams. It makes me value every conversation I'm having a little bit more. It, it, it's teaching me when I'm having a bad day because, oh my God, the hits keep coming. It's mm -hmm. like, that is entirely okay. You know, and my emotions are not here to be suppressed. They're, they're, they're here to teach me something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's. T I feel like I'm just learning about life, the reality of life. You know, here I'm. I've raised two kids. They're 21 and 19. I'm 44 years old. I've done a bunch of stuff. I've never learned as much as I've learned this year. Yeah, that's that's a big that's a big statement. Oh, there's no sure. question. I mean, I mean, this this is. I mean, I, I I don't know who else. Someone tell me who else is like you know had a bigger moment than I, this is unbelievable. Like the stuff that keeps happening, you know, and. Uh, and and it's also just like, I feel like there's so many white people specifically around the topic of like racism where, you know, white people are saying, uh, oh, my God, I didn't know. I, you know, I can't believe how much I'm learning. That's like a co pretty common sentiment. Sure, you're hearing. sure. But I got to tell you, like, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with black people where we're saying the same thing, you know, because we had all sort of been just living with this acceptance of the way that it was. But now that it's an open everyday conversation it all hits different. You know what I'm saying? It's not that we, like, we certainly knew it was here, but man, it hits different when we're talking about it every day, you know, and we're protesting about it and we're watching our president not acknowledge it. And we're watching people openly try to gaslight us and we know it. And we're just like, wow, this, you know what I mean? Like we're all learning about it, I think in a, in an even, in an even different way. And so, yeah, there's just a ton of learning, so much learning happening right now. Yeah, I think a, a number of people have pointed out that it's a very encouraging time, even as, as depressing and hard and emotionally draining as it is. Uh, it's a very encouraging time just because if you look at things through this, the macro lens of history, it's like the discourse is elevating. I mean, yes, there's resistance, but if you, you know, the, the set of laws that are frequently attributed to Schopenhauer about, you know, things are violently opposed and uh, ridiculed and then accepted as um, accepted as a given, I think it's the other way around. It's ridiculed, then violently opposed, then accepted as a given. Then we're definitely in that violently opposed stage, yes. right? The, yes. the, the violent opposition has literally come forward. 
literal vial opposition. And that suggests, if, if the pattern holds, that we may be on the verge of a, a genuine breakthrough to where we get to that third stage, that equity is genuinely accepted, just taken as a given. And I don't know whether we can expect that, you know, in a matter of a couple of years, our lifetimes, whatever, but just to, to know that if you can think of it within that framework, you know, if that framework is true, yeah. that, you know, that, that we can take, you know, some encouragement from thinking, okay, well, it's out there, it's happening, it's surfaced. And if it's surfaced, that means that, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and we can just get this, get this done with. We can get it, the conversations happening, get the knowledge out there. Yeah, I don't think anyone finds the violent opposition as a as a place of comfort. But I think no. but I but I ultimately think you're right. I ultimately think you're right. I agree with you. You know, I I think that's the hard part, right? The hard part is the hard part is the hard part. And we're right. in the hard part. Right. Yeah, right. And, and excuse me if I articulated that wrong. I don't no, mean to suggest no. that the violence is is comforting. It's more that the moment suggests that that may be the direction that we're moving through. Uh, James Gilchrist says, tumultuous moments in history have led to greatest positive change. They are just challenging to live through, which is, is a fair, I feel like a fair statement. Amen. Um, one thing, you know, before we wrap, and these are all, I mean, I think the the big picture, you know, kind of humanity level discussion is a, is a wonderful way to, to wrap. But I also wanted to see if we could squeeze in just a minute or two of asking you about, you know, one of the things that's happened during COVID is certainly the the emphasis on telehealth services and, you know, talking about those digital transformation trends that you've seen and, and, you know, what's happening in terms of 2020's technology emphasis. Certainly people have seen that jump in in telehealth or e-health services. But I would imagine that through your work with Jumpstart and Health Further that you've actually been seeing these services for quite some time. So I wonder what you expect to emerge as part of the human experience of virtual healthcare with technology. What do you expect us to see in the the moments, months, years to come? Yeah, I I think, uh, thank you for asking it in that way because it's really important to note that uh, telehealth as a technology, just as you would imagine, just like we've had Skype and all these other things for a long time. Telehealth has been around for a very long time. It has not been uh, appropriately reimbursable. Mm. So the policy did not support widespread use of it. There was a lot of stuff around whether or not you could actually see a doctor across state lines and all these different regulatory barriers that made telehealth just un it, it just wasn't viable. It mm-hmm. just wasn't viable. Of course, when you have a public health emergency where people cannot actually go into doctor's offices, well, all those regula- regulatory barriers come down mm-hmm. because hey, you got to keep things going somehow. And I think uh, when you have things like that happen and then everything is fine and the sky doesn't fall, people realize, oh, wow, well, maybe because they were always trying to regulate to protect people. But then they realize, OK, well, we removed the, the regulatory barriers and people were fine. So that regulation makes actually no sense and people should have more choice and they should be able to do telehealth if they want to. And so I don't think that we're going to be able to put that cat back in the box. I think, you know, (laughs) Schrodinger's cat reference there. (laughs) Yes. yes. Uh, You know, going forward, uh, telehealth will be will be a thing. Um, We were already on the path to doing more and more uh, healthcare in the home, mm-hmm. you know, patients feel more secure in the home and it's a better environment for healing. Uh, but again, it was something that they were trying to stop because is the home an appropriate place for healthcare to take place? Lo and behold, it's just fine. 
We just have to create the appropriate protocols for it. So it's going to be more and more moving procedures out of, you know, inpatient settings into the homes. So you're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, you know, I, I think that we're, we're finally going to start seeing some real breakthroughs in innovation in healthcare. Most of the the lack of innovation has not been because we didn't have great thinkers, because we didn't have great technology, because we didn't have capital partners willing to really back the innovation. It has largely been regulatory barriers. Um, and and what, what moves in healthcare is what's reimbursable. So as new codes for procedures come up that are reimbursable, remote patient monitoring was a huge one that came up in the last year. So now we have doctors caring about it. Doctors will care about what they can get paid for is, mm. the, is the simple, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of end of story. And we do finally have innovation there from Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services. So from that perspective, it's exciting. And I would just say, you know, if you, there's so much stuff around healthcare, but but if you really want to know where healthcare is going, tune in to CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In America, they basically drive the thing. And and it's quite frankly not that complicated for the average, you know, uh, American, even the layman's like understand it. You, you, you guys spend a month on it, then you'll kind of get it. So if you really want to know where this is going, just track what's happening at the CMS. And so with that, what are some of the, the, the big picture trends besides telehealth that you see coming in the future of tech and health, that intersection? They're mostly at the business model level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, OK, the FDA is experimenting with many types of fast tracking of things. Um, I think that this this uh, vaccine is a big motivator for that. But mm-hmm. there's generally speaking, I think there's going to be a lot more devices coming out uh, via FDA fast track mechanisms. Um there is going to be much more uh, remote doctor supervision allowance that's going to start happening. And so this, this is not just telehealth, but it's also like who can do something with you with a doctor somewhere else that's actually not overseeing the procedure. So it lowers the cost of the of the labor provider, which should lower the cost of the procedure for the patient slash, slash customer slash insurance company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's going to be uh, on the horizon as well. Um, there, there are some you know particular service lines that are that are going to see a lot of innovation, uh, end stage k- kidney disease, things of that nature. Um, but but look, there's there's just a ton of uncertainty. The, the truth is, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the death of RBG is is significant because it puts uh, the ACA into real question as it, as it pertains to a big Supreme Court, you know, a case that's up for it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty. Healthcare is driven by DC, and there's a lot of uncertainty in DC. So there's a lot of uncertainty in healthcare. Um, I do think ultimately, you know, if you're looking 10, 15 years out, we're going to see a much more efficient, much better healthcare system. But for the next four, it's kind of murky because mm-hmm. I don't know where we're where we're going to be, where we're going to land. That makes sense. Well, thanks for that uh, forecast. Hey, real quick before we sign off, let let people know how they can find and follow you and your work online. MarcusWhitney.com, at Marcus Whitney on all the socials. That's it. Okay, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I am so grateful to you for joining me and for allowing our conversation to go in organic directions, uh, you know, into business, soccer, race, uh, social justice, economy, everything. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to you. I, I, I appreciate our friendship. And I'm so glad that you were able to join me for this. I'm so glad I was invited. I get to call my mom and tell her I made it. I was on the Tech Humanist <laughs> Show. I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes 
or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience. Thank you.